This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Lisa Leong with you. Are you a glass half full or a glass half empty type of person? You may have met the glass half empty person, lifelong worrywart, pessimist to the core who can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But then there's Victor Person, where the glass isn't just half full, it's overflowing. You see, Victor is an optimist, a radical one. In fact, he comes from a long line of optimists, four generations of people who built new lives as refugees who survived political persecution, a widowed mother who raised a young family in a foreign land, a grandmother who survived more than a decade in the Gulag. Throughout it all, no one in Victor's family ever lost sight of what could be. And it's that attitude which has fuelled Victor's 18 years in state parliament, his career as a barrister, as commissioner to the Americas, and now as chief optimism officer at the Centre for Optimism. Hello, Victor. A delight to be with you, Lisa. Take me back along these four generations of optimists. Who was your grandfather on your father's side? Uh, Vladis Petronitis, and he was came from a farming family. You know, like you often hear these stories, the first one to go to university, and a rat pack of cousins. They went off to St Petersburg in 1905. They were there, of course, at the beginning of the first Russian Revolution. You know, he completed university there in, in mathematics and law, and then went on to teach at, at the military academy. And then in 1917... The Russian Revolution, this rat pack of, of Lithuanian military guys went back to Lithuania, helped to create an army, fought uh, off the Soviets, fought the remnant Germans, fought the Poles, and then settled down into a peaceful life in Lithuania until 1940. Why did they form an army? Well, because they wanted independence. He had grown up in Tsarist Russia where they suppressed native languages, native literature. You know, it was a dictatorship. And, you know, he came from a family of people who believed in freedom, in, in those early ideas of liberalism, you know, as a, a liberation of, of the, the human spirit. And so to get freedom, they had to fight the Germans who were left over from World War I. They had to fight the Soviets who wanted to recreate the Soviet Union's borders. Um, and, of course, there was a battle with the Polish um, over where the, the north, relative northern and southern borders should be. For how long did he fight? Well, at that stage, it was probably five to six years. They were still fighting in 22, 23, although it doesn't you know, appear much in Australian history books. And, but then it settled down and, and, you know, they lived this, you know, really pleasant life. He settled down as a lawyer, married a... You know, society girl, they you know, had a hobby farm, you know, a holiday place on the coast. Um, so life was, was pretty blissful at that point. What happened in Lithuania at the outbreak of World War II? Well, it was before the outbreak of World War II. There was the treaty between Hitler and Stalin, known as the Molotov-Rippentrop Pact, which gave Germany most of Poland, but gave the Soviets the three Baltic states and the top part of Poland. And so um, they invaded. Um, my mother related the story. She was only 12 at that point and working on a farm, as kids did in those days during summer holidays. And, you know, these strange guys that looked like Martians, you know, with pointed helmets on tanks. And so they came in and um, they arrested people. And um, so in the Lithuanian side of things, uh, my grandfather was amongst the first um, to be arrested, um, months of interrogation, because, again, what you see in Russia and the Ukraine today is this determination to get people to confess to something. And, and even though he hadn't committed any crimes, it was this torture until he would confess. But then, of course, the beginning of the, the Russian-German war, um, Operation Barbarossa, um, the Russians took all the political prisoners, and in his case, um, he was taken to a forest tortured to death, and, you know, that was, was you know, the result of, of that Soviet invasion. It was part of quite a notorious massacre. Yes, it was. So he was the oldest, and but there were teenagers killed with him. They were 
buried in a mass grave. When they were exhumed, you know, the body was almost unrecognisable. I won't talk about the tortures that were imposed. But, yeah, there's a beautiful chapel now on that site. And um, I actually took um, uh, my uh, wife not long after it had been built there. And, uh, of course, there's this beautiful chapel um, there. But, of course, in the crypt, there are the photos of what actually happened. And I still remember, I probably hadn't prepared her for it. And I just remember her shock at these things that had happened. So it was uh, obviously yeah, a terrible time for people. Um, but the whole of World War II, I mean, it was a terrible time from people from Asia through to Europe. Where was your grandmother at that time? Like I think all wives of prisoners, you know, trying to, to stay in touch, um, trying to bring food to the prison. You know, you had to bribe uh, the the prison officials to, to take food to people and you didn't even know that was the case. So she was stuck there with young children, her husband in jail, fearful of what would happen to him. And there was a moment when she tried to escape with your father and his younger sister. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that was towards the end of the war. So um, there was that period in between you know, his father's execution and and. The, the Soviets advancing again and the Soviets coming in, you know, they would have all died. You know, it was, it was just execution for, for people. So my father had gone to the coast to arrange an escape and his mother uh, was going to drive to the coast and it was a bit like the film Sliding Doors. She left 15 minutes too late and was cut off by a Russian tank column, had to go home and then was ultimately arrested by the secret police and sent to the gulag with her then 12-year-old daughter. And she, you know, to Irkutsk, um, camps where hundreds of thousands of people died. And she never told the story of survival. I mean, the the horrors uh, must have been too much. Uh, But, you know, she lived on. And um, for me, you know, one of my most incredible moments was in the late 80s when she rang me and said, I want to go to the first freedom rally. So Sayudis was the Lithuanian version of Solidarność. And uh, there she was in a walking frame. You know, clearly her health had been broken. And she said to me, I'm going to outlive communism. And she took part in the million hands across the Baltics. Um, you know, the famous thing where a million people stood across Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia and, and held hands for freedom. And then, of course, in 1991, you know, after in the August coup, um, the phone lines had been dead for a while, but someone had switched them back on and I rang and I said, Grandma, amazing things are happening in Moscow. She said, I know, I'm watching on CNN. And so she outlived communism and was able to to live and take part again in a democratic free society. And we see, you know, the legacy now as Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia are some of the biggest backers of the Ukrainians in, in their war for freedom against the Russians. And Victor... What about your mother's parents? How were they optimists? Well, they were, were in Latvia, so in a town called Liepaja. Um, they were descend. They were a funny couple because they were, in fact, Lutheran and Catholic, uh, which in those days, you know, in the 1920s, was still, you know, a bit of a shock to both sides. Um, and they were descended from Swedes who'd gone across to Latvia in the 1840s. So, of course, the Soviet invasion occurred in 1940. Um, they were on the death list. And, um, you know, 20,000 people disappeared on the first night of terror and, and they were due to go on the next one. And luckily someone told them and they literally packed a suitcase that night onto a boat uh, and became refugees in 1940. Where did they go? They went to Germany because they... It was the only place they could go and, and because they had a Prussian grandmother, they were entitled to go there. Now, of course, they had all the same problems. I still my, my mum telling the story of her younger brother, Victor, you know, because they had a funny accent in Germany. You know, it was a bit like, you know, funny accents for refugees in any country. You know, they got picked on and the like. And so they ended up in a refugee camp um, near Hamburg. And then, you know, the Germans got people to work and, you know, you worked in factories and did things like that. And then, you know, they, they survived through the war under the bombings. Both grandparents were in Dresden um, at the time of the fire bombing, but luckily survived. You know, I mean, they did stuff. My, my mum at, at age 14, you know, crossed Germany under the bombs to take her little brother to a place of safety. And 
Then at the end of the war, they ended up in the Soviet zone again. You know, Germany was divided into four zones. And so there they were stuck in a camp in the Russian zone. My grandfather negotiated with the Americans and they took everyone out. But my mum was out gathering food when the trucks came. So there she was at that stage, a 16-year-old, on her own in Soviet-occupied Germany. And luckily enough, she got to the, the border checkpoints and these young Americans, you know, she must have charmed them or they were just, you know, sweet on a, a teenage girl. So they stopped in a car going through. Um, she then travelled to Bavaria and, and luckily enough was reunited with her family um, in a refugee camp under the American occupation. When we left your father, he was really stranded and he had to escape on his own. Where did he end up? At that point, he also ended up in Germany. So that was at the end of the war. He actually escaped with another cousin. And then because he spoke beautiful English, in fact, you know, like everyone at that time, he spoke six languages unaccented. So that's how he ended up with the British Ministry of Labor, working with the, with the British occupation forces and trying to recruit talented people to go and live in England. How did your parents meet? Well, mum was uh, at the refugee camp and um, uh, dad, in fact, because of the job he had, had a chauffeur-driven limousine. and um, Fancy. He, so he came to the refugee camp to, you know, obviously recruit Latvians and Estonians and the like to go and, and, and work in England. As he drove up and hopped out of the car, my mother was there to greet him and she looked at him and said, gosh, he's good looking. That's the sort of bloke I'd like to marry. And uh, six weeks later, um, they were married because my grandparents were heading to Australia with the rest of the family and, you know, respectable people would not leave a single daughter, you know, living in a ruined Germany on her own. So it was, young man, what are your intentions? And it was a, a quick but happy marriage. What was your mum doing in Germany? She was still a teenager at the end of the war, but as teenagers do, she said, the refugee camps even though, you know, it's tough times. You know, they took up dancing and singing and everything that teenagers do. Uh, but one of those stories she tells me about starvation, you know, at the end of the war when the Americans came in, they brought soup kitchens and the like, and, you know, even though it was probably terrible pea soup, she still remembers that first bowl of American pea soup. And when we travelled through California, there's a very famous pea soup restaurant on the way between LA and San Francisco, so we'd always have to stop there <laughs> um, and drink pea soup and, and eat black bread in memory of those Americans uh, saving them from starvation. How did they come to Australia? And tell me about what they remember about arriving in Australia. So uh, they came via Naples. So the Australian government was recruiting people from Northern Europe. So they got to Naples and I think that story is quite common. You know, a lot of Italians and Greeks and the like who came to Australia all, all came out of Naples. Um, they stopped in Colombo in those days and, and uh, then arriving in Perth, you know, which still remains the most remote city on earth and in those days was extremely remote. Um, and, of course, your first introduction to Australian English and then, you know, coming in through Sydney Harbour and beautiful, beautiful beyond belief and uh, then on a train to Bathurst, sharing a tent with four other old refugees who were coughing and spluttering, as my mother said, and then having showers outside and she told... She's a bit like me. She, she always... Every bad story is, is regarded as a funny story and the, the outdoor shower where all of a sudden these eyes looked over the side and she ran out screaming naked and, of course, it was a possum. <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously, you know, at that point you had to work um, and even if you had professional qualifications, you had to work in a factory. Uh, so they came down to Melbourne. Um, that was the option offered to them. And mum was cutting tyres in the Dunlop rubber factory. And, um, yeah, she'd never done anything like that, you know, and you had to press these old presses with your leg and cut and the stench. And um, so that was um, quite a remarkable thing. My father was rolling the tyres and um, putting them on trucks to, to go places. And they were in a single-room boarding house in a, a suburb close to the centre for Melbourne and, you know, the, the rats and the mice and 
Um, although my mum always talks about how nice people were and because her English, her English was sort of you know, very European English English, you know, the lady, when she used to come back to the boarding house, the lady would say, have you had your tea yet? And mum was always bewildered at this notion that, you know, she was worrying about tea at 5.30 in the day. And, of course, the woman was just trying to be friendly and invite them to dinner. Um, so ultimately they worked that out and started to have dinner. But those funny experiences... In fact, my grandmother had that funny experience of the Australian um, bring a plate. Oh, the old trap, bring a plate. And, Did they and, just bring a plate? Well, she, she put on gloves and a hat and went to what was the most elegant store in Melbourne those days, George's, and uh, bought a beautiful plate which was gift-wrapped <laughs> and at the local Catholic church. She was the first migrant right, the first non-English-speaking migrant in the area and, and at the church. And um, so, you know, of course, the ladies had invited her and, of course, she brought the plate and was mortified when she worked out she should have brought it with food on. How else did your parents have to change to fit into Australian society at the time? So Australia was not used to that point, non-English-speaking migrants. It was still very Anglo-Irish. Um, and uh, so, I mean, they're nice things. I mean, the, the bolts were referred to as bloody bolts. And I still meet guys in their 80s and 90s who talk about having played table tennis against my Uncle Victor. And um, so you get lots of lovely stories. But, of course, there was ribbing too. I mean, you know, like you and I laugh. Um, the surname was Petronitis. And... Of course, there were jokes about peritonitis, you know. The, Is that the, a horse? No, it's a chest infection. A chest infection. An abdominal <laughs> infection. And um, Australians <laughs> couldn't pronounce um, long names. Um, so my father changed the name well before I was born. So I'm, I'm Victor Purton. When I go to Lithuania, I'm Victoris Petronitis. But uh, Victor Purton became my name. and But that was one of the things that they had to do um, to change. And But look, they settled in and... Um, yeah, my father ended up getting a job in real estate. You know, mum, you had a few different jobs. And when I was born, they were already doing well enough that she could take time off to, to raise me until I started school, which she then described, often described as some of the happiest days of her life. Now, your father died when you were seven. He did, he did. And, and it was, you know, the stuff of that time. You know, during the war, everyone was stressed, anxious. Um, smoking was the norm. Smoking was the norm everywhere. And, of course, in, in post-war Europe, cigarettes were the currency. Uh, so, yes, now he got cancer at first. I don't know whether it was language differences or whatever. It was not diagnosed until quite late. Um, so he died. So mum was then, you know, a widow with young kids in a, in a strange land. And, and she always talks about, and I experienced it too, how wonderful the neighbours were. So it was the Aussie neighbours who stepped in. And, you know, the fellow across the road was a hairdresser and, and he used to, you know, bring and grew vegetables and flowers and um, used to help with the garden. So his wife used to invite us over to dinner. And it was a classic. He, his, his dining habit was chops, potatoes and three veg every night. So whenever Perfect. we wanted chops, vegetables and, and uh, potatoes, we could go there. The next door neighbour was a painter. Um, and again, you know, with mum working and me coming home from school, um, I'd often pop in there and, uh, of course, he would help with the, the painting and the maintenance. So we had, you know, this astonishing, delightful, warm welcome from people when we were in trouble. So we saw the best of people. And so what was your home life like? Oh, look, very happy. Um, yeah, mum was very good. Uh, obviously, you know, there, there was the grief after dad died. But you know, she was a woman who stepped forward. Um, you know, I often, we run the Nelson Mandela Youth Leadership Summit and uh, one of the things Nelson Mandela said is optimism is looking to the sun and putting one foot in front of the other. And I think my mum's motto was strong and calm, I manage my life. So she had three jobs. She sent uh, my sister and me to Catholic schools we had lovely, well, both stage, we had uncles and cousins here. And so, you know, that sort of lovely family life as well. How did your mother encourage your curiosity as a child? What sort of books did she save up to buy you? In those days, I mean, wages weren't very high and, you know, a single income household with two kids. And 
my mum wanted to get me an encyclopedia. So she, there were two encyclopedias in those days, the Britannica, which was very expensive, um, and the World Book, which was an American one, which was much more affordable. And uh, so we got that. And of course, I just started pouring into um, the World Book Encyclopedia, page for page, book after book, you know, and, and learning what an aardvark was. I think I was the only kid in class who knew what an aardvark was. Um, so that sort of stuff. And then, you know, I just still remember because it was an old California bungalow house, which was is very common in Melbourne. So Coburg, East Coburg. And uh, I still remember mum doing, you know, preparing sour cream and yoghurt, you know, in a little window on the side. And, you know, one of the funniest stories in the family was, was her brothers, Paul and Victor, got a job in a dairy just after they'd got to Australia. And having learned from their mum, they wanted to create, you know, yoghurt and sour cream too. And all the Aussies seeing them doing this thought they were going to die. You know, how can you eat sour milk? Yeah, and of course, you know, our foods were different, you know, sort of eel and um, all those dishes that Aussies weren't used to eating. You were obviously a curious child at home. What were you like at school? Look, I think I was a very good boy. Uh, you know, I was only um, strapped a couple of times in primary school for um, brawling with the other gang. And I think I went to a Christian Brothers high school. Uh, I think I was only caned a couple of times. So in, in those days, you know, when the strap and the cane were still normal punishments, I think um, I was fairly good. Um, and always good groups of friends. You know, I always... You know, it, it seemed I attracted, you know, good groups of friends and we enjoyed life and we weren't wealthy. I mean, East Coburg in those days was very working class. Is this perhaps a really early example of your optimistic outlook to see this punishment, the caning, as, oh, I can't have been that bad. I only got caned <laughs> once or twice. I think so. <laughs> I, I still, um, one of the brothers had... Um, a real propensity to sort of whack you if you were um, drifting off. You know, he wanted us all to concentrate in our studies. So, you know, you'd get a, a whack over the back of the head with his hand if you were sort of drifting off, as teenage boys tend to do. So, yeah, we used to make fun of it. You know, we used to make up uh, nicknames for these brothers and, you know, one of them had a surname of Schwarzkopf, which, of course, in German is blackhead. So you can imagine all the jokes we made about those. So in those days, what did you dream of becoming when you grew up? So it was interesting. I used to play a lot of war games and it was all about, you know, obviously from my origins, it was war games about liberating the people of Europe from the Soviet Union. So in those days, the Soviet Union incorporated Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine and, and of course, you know, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary were all parts of the Soviet Union. So I'd always used to sort of, you know, as kids did with board games in those days, not like the computer games of today. So, you know, these invasion paths, how we would bring freedom to people. And so I drifted between different professions. But there was always this notion of you know, freedom and liberty. And so even at, at VCE, or what was then HSC, um, my first preference set I put down was medicine, and then the, in those days, you could make one change. And uh, I changed to law because I thought that going into politics would ultimately, I could influence Australian global public policy towards intervention for freedom. Because in those days, those of us who came from those countries were extremely frustrated. You know, the Americans, you know, I think the balance of power, um, you know, books like the military industrial state, you know, there was this balance that kept the Americans prosperous, you know, with a big military, kept the Soviets occupied with a big military. So there was this sort of standoff with, with literally hundreds of millions of people, prisoners of dictatorships, and I just thought that was wrong. I can see that theme, you know, in your family history. Was there any other belief system or religion in your household? So we were Catholics. My, my sister and I both went to Catholic schools, um, obviously First Communion, Confirmation. Uh, we weren't deeply religious. We went to church on Sundays. But my mum's, you know, moving into yoga. So she started off with Christian yoga. And then she studied more. You know, we became more familiar with Hinduism and Buddhism. And 
I think our family became more spiritual than religious. And, and in fact, so my belief system, you know, when I talk to people about my liberalism, which, which is my political ideology, uh, the most influential book I read was by a writer called Hobhouse, a 1911 pamphlet. And in it, he talks about liberalism as the liberation of living spiritual energy. And so that's my liberalism. You know, it's not a conservative ideologue of no change. I think that really sums up my family's ideology, right? We hated dictatorship of left or right. What we wanted was human freedom, human dignity. On air, online and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Victor, you were describing your mother getting deeper and deeper into her yoga practice. How did she get into yoga in the first place? So not long before I was born or about the time I was born, she started to get migraines. And, you know, she went, you know, did the round of doctors and, you know, what do you do about migraine? In those days, there wasn't much you could do about migraine other than lie down and put a, you know, ice pack on your head. And then she was watching early television and there was a lady there who came on and started talking about yoga, including doing yoga for headaches. And so mum started to practice yoga and she found the first yoga teacher in Melbourne, a lady called Margaret Segesman. And so mum became an enthusiastic student of yoga. And it wasn't until after dad died that she even contemplated teaching. For her, it was a practice my sister was then a teenager and yoga was, you know, starting to be talked about and the Beatles had gone to India and people were looking at Indian, you know, spirituality and the like. And this group of teenagers, as my sister relates it, were talking about this yoga thing. And my sister embarrassedly said, <laughs> oh, my mum does that. And the girl said, oh, God, can she teach us? And so mum started um, a first class in a, in a cold... Catholic hall um, teaching these girls how to do yoga. And as mum describes it, you know, there were kids playing basketball outside. It was very noisy. And she said, look, let's do the next class at my house. Um, so this became a ritual for 20 or 30 years. We would move all the furniture out of the lounge room and dining room and that would become a yoga studio. And um, as the, the teenage girls became better and better at yoga, then the group of mothers came to mum and said, will you teach us yoga? Um, and then, of course, another group of mothers and another group of mothers and then their friends. And, and then funny things started to happen to her, like she got a phone call from the tax commissioner. The tax commissioner? And mum's thinking, I've paid my tax. What am I doing <laughs> wrong? You know, and, of course, you're a refugee, you know, when a commissioner of the government rings... Uh, what, what did is the it? tax commissioner want? He wanted her to come and teach <laughs> yoga to her senior executives. So he was a very forward-looking guy in, in that time in Australia. And, and then Mum ended up teaching at the Assumption Institute, um, which was the big Catholic college for nuns from around the world. She ended up teaching for over 50 years, was still teaching at the age of 92. And I, I thought she'd stop. She died of pancreatic cancer and I thought she'd stop you know, soon after that diagnosis. But at the funeral, her students told me she was still <laughs> teaching until about three months before she died. How would you describe your mum as a woman? She had a, a charisma. She had, she had a real charisma and um, always very modest, humble, but loved teaching yoga. For her, it was just this natural charisma. And as she used to say to me, I tell people to put their hand up 
their hand goes up. I told them to lift their leg, their leg goes up. But we did lovely things like, you know, she, like I think all widowed mothers, you know, she, they overcompensate, you know, and they become father and mother. And I still remember when I was eight, I wanted to go fishing. She said, all oh, right, I'll do this. And we drove to this suburb in Melbourne, which is called Mordialic. And it's famous for the Mordialic Creek where there were lots and lots of fishing boats for hire. And she got there and they're big fishing boats, you know, with diesel engines. <laughs> and she's looking at this thinking, I've never started a boat with a diesel engine. And um, we're looking, looking, and then this Aussie bloke in another boat shouts out, what do you want, love? And she said, oh, look, I'd like to hire a boat. He said, oh, listen, look, I'm going out in this one. Why don't you put your boy in and I'll take you out? And uh, we ended up catching three buckets of flathead. And it was, that again, one of those lovely experiences of Australianism. Sounds like she loved an adventure. Where did she really want to go for a yoga adventure? Well, what happened when, when my father died, she had been studying yoga and, and particularly the Sri Aurobindo, um, whose ashram is in Pondicherry. And... She contemplated moving there because there was a new international settlement called Oroville um, where people were coming together to live this yogic lifestyle and, and to create a better world. You know, my sister was in her final years of high school and so, no, we didn't move. And then it was in 1995 I was asked to give a speech at the National University in Bangalore. I rang mum and I said, look, I've got this invitation to go to Bangalore. Uh, would you like to come? And she said to me, you won't believe this. I have open on my desk a book called Healing Through Yoga about the Vivekananda Ashram near Bangalore. You go to your conference, I'll go to the ashram, and then we can travel together. Then a week before we were due to go, she rings me up and she says, oh, can we go to Pondicherry? And I looked at the map and I said, oh, look, just too hard, Mum. And she said, oh, okay. And when we got to the airport a few days later, there was a queue out the terminal nearly a kilometre long. In those days, there were lots of snap strikes in Australia and there was a snap strike of baggage handlers. So our flight couldn't take off that day and Qantas, to their credit, did their best. And they said, well, you'll have to go tomorrow morning via Adelaide, Adelaide to Singapore, but you will miss the connection to Bangalore. You'll have to go through Chennai. Chennai, of course, is only a two-hour drive from Pondicherry. I said, we'll do that, but we need to stay there two days. We ended up driving to Pondicherry. We went to Oroville. It was just stunningly beautiful. Other funny things happened on that trip. Um, Ramakrishna Hegde, who was one of the founders of the current uh, governing party of India, invited us to the chief minister's residence. And so the five of us are sitting there. It's 8 o'clock in the evening and, you know, the, the whiskeys come out and the wine for the ladies and food's coming out and food's coming out and food's coming out and food's coming out. At about 11 o'clock, we, you know, we're both a bit tired and uh, dinner is served. So at 11 o'clock, oh. there's this 20-course um, South Indian banquet. By the time you went to India with your mum, you'd already been elected into Victorian State Parliament. How long were you an elected member for? Uh, 18 years. Um, so uh, opposition, government, opposition. I got there at a really good time. I mean, Parliament was still old-fashioned. You know, so you'd go into question time, belt each other, and then you'd go out to the coffee room or the bar and you could talk about anything with anyone. And the dining room was a bit like boarding school. You always had to sit next to the next person. So even if they were your worst enemy in the party... Um, you had to sit down and, and do pleasantries. And, you know, for young people, of course, who can't imagine a time without the internet, um, it was a time of incredible exploration. And so we set up the first multimedia agency in the world. Um, I chaired Australia's first data privacy committee. And just to set the scene, this is the early 90s. It was really just the beginning of the internet. What possibilities did you see then at that time, Victor? <laughs> they all laughed at me. I built um, Australia's first website for a politician. And, in fact, I coded it myself. And when I said to my colleagues then, 
well, this is the way you are going to communicate to your constituents. They all laughed at me and, and this the notion that, that you would go beyond um, dusty town halls and do electronic town halls. We, in fact, did one of the world's first electronic town halls. Um, I ended up moderating the World Bank's first online forum. Um, so these were really interesting experimental days. What did you love about the possibility of the internet? Communicating with everyone. So when I started to do the first policy consultations, I still remember there were these two Canadian ladies who sent me an email and said, oh, we live in Canada, but can we participate? So for me, it was this globalisation. I believed, you know, as an old liberal and, and having studied my economics in the 70s, that it would create this incredible environment of world commerce and competition, which it has, but I don't think any of us imagined we'd be building trillion-dollar companies, you know, who extract their pound of flesh from every small business working in the global economy. But for us, it was this incredible time. When did you then feel like you were done with Australian politics? Early 2000s, I could feel that politics was becoming ever more negative. So that notion, you know, that you could go in and shout at each other in question time and then go out and do a press conference and say that he or she was the most inept minister in the history of man, but then go in and both of you knowing it was very professional, collaborate. And so that was disappearing, you know, and there was more animosity, more nastiness in the chamber. So 2006, I just decided this was enough. What did you do next? Well, at the beginning, I I just had my own entrepreneurial business. And then out of the blue, the then Labor Premier, a guy, we'd almost spat at each other across the table. You know, when men shout, uh, a bit like here in the studio, when men shout, you know, there's a bit of spittle that moves across. (laughs) And uh, he took me aside and uh, at a lunch and he said, look, Queensland is sending uh, their former Premier to America as their Commissioner to the Americas. And I think we need to balance that. So I want a person with a big personality. Would you do it? And, well, it was 24 hours of thinking and chatting with my wife and um, it was the second best job in the Victorian government. You know, this was promoting foreign direct investment inwards into um, Australia. Uh, It was promoting exports. Um, So this utterly positive job, um, headquartered in San Francisco, an office in New York, an office in Chicago... Honestly, it, it to be offered the second best job in government by someone from the other party, um, I think I was truly blessed. How are you received in the United States? It, it, it was just stunning because the stereotype from North to South America of we Australians is as relentless optimists. The chairman of Caterpillar said to me, you Aussies remind me of the Americans of 100 years ago. Nothing is impossible. Um, I still remember uh, the mayor of Porto Alegre in Brazil and they had these engineering scholarships that they were sending kids to and um, he was joking with me. He said, oh, look, if they go to Queensland, um, they go there for the sun and the surf and the sex and if they go to Melbourne, we know they're really serious because it's too cold to do anything. I um, I bought a Pontiac G8, which was a Holden Commodore, tricked up um, for American driving. And the number of times I was just stopped by Americans who would say, what is that? And I said, this is an Aussie car. And then some funny stuff, like in the supermarket in San Francisco, the favourite yoghurt was Wallaby yoghurt. But the only connection with Australia was the owners of the firm. On the label, they said, the owners visited Australia and we so loved Australian (laughs) yoghurt that we thought we'd come back to California and make yoghurt just the same. Any good? It was very good. Very good. And in middle America, who baked lamingtons just for you? Ah, well, I had to visit... Um, the pharmaceutical companies, one of my big jobs was to support a huge delegation that would go to bio. So as I was preparing, I had to go and visit Eli Lilly, you know, the large pharmaceutical company based in Indianapolis. And so when I got there, um, the catering manager was so excited to have an Australian coming. She had baked lamingtons and party pies. And they are not American foods. I think it was the first time a lamington had ever been baked 
in Indianapolis. Um, and there we were, the president of the company, his senior executives, um, dripping coconut onto their <laughs> ties and the like, uh, but agreeing that this was a, yet another good reason to foster relations with Australia. When did you come back to Australia? I returned to Melbourne in 2015 and I was astonished by the negativity. Now, I had changed. You know, you live in California, yeah, it is like the, the holy fountain of optimism. So I had changed, but so had Australia. And what surprised me, you know, having had that G20 and American experience of people admiring Australian leadership, was the disparaging language about leadership here. And political leadership everywhere. I mean, I'm sure Russia has a thousand jokes about Putin and every country jokes about their political leaders. But here it was this antipathy, this this embarrassment about Australian corporate leadership, institutional leadership. It, it felt very odd to me. What did you try to do to understand it? So rather than complain about the complainers, <laughs> I set up a project called the Australian Leadership Project. And what we were asking was, you know, what are the qualities of Australian leadership that are unique? Who are the Australian leaders you admire? So we ended up interviewing about 2,500 people. And at the end of the two years and the interviews, we concluded that Australian leadership was pretty good. But what distinguishes it from global leadership are three factors that I think. One is egalitarianism. Second is self-effacing humour. You know, this laughing at ourselves. In some countries, it's a mental illness. The Americans don't get it. You know, why would you tell a joke against yourself? And then the third one was no bullshit plain speaking. So those are the three qualities. And the conclusion was that Australian leadership was pretty good. So at the end of two years of research, the end of 2017, I am still bewildered as to why Australian language has become so negative. The leaders weren't the problem. So what was? So the revelation came at the Global Integrity Summit, um, where I was on the last panel of speakers. And it was three days of misery top speakers on integrity and press freedom. At the end of the three days, you would have thought the world is in ruin, you know, it, it's authoritarianism from equator to every pole, both poles. And I changed my speech to the case for optimism and it lit up the room. Uh, and, you know, here's someone saying we can do it. It's not the problem of leadership it's the fog of pessimism. And then in, in 2019, um, a, a government official asked me to do some work on op, uh, innovation. And I said, look, you don't have to pay me. I just want you to make a speech on the connection between innovation and optimism. And uh, he uh, was not a great optimist. And I could have asked for no higher price. Uh, but in very fruity language, he said, what the could the government do that Victor Purton himself can't do globally? And I thought, you're bloody right. And so that night I registered the URL Centre for Optimism. That night I started building the website for the Centre for Optimism and we haven't looked back. So what do you actually do at the Centre for Optimism? So the mission is to help individuals and organisations to be more optimistic. And so we do research. You know, why is optimism valuable to you as an individual? And, and the science now says the key trait associated with healthy longevity is optimism, right? And, and it's your personal optimism. It's the optimism of your spouse. It's the underpinning of resilience. You know, man's search for meaning. How can you be resilient unless you believe persistence will lead to a better result? So, so we've done lots and lots of research. And in particular, we've really developed habits of optimism. What are some of those habits of optimism? Some of it's just simple stuff like smile and say hello to everyone as the Dalai Lama would advocate or laugh more. You know, Bishop Tutu um, said, you know, God commands us to laugh. And again, it's a memory of my mother. My mother used to laugh during the middle of similar dis serious discussions. So does the Dalai Lama. One of the ones we really love um, is to change your greeting. So in Australian English, um, like Irish English, um, but so too in French and Austrian German, the typical greeting is, g'day, how are you? And the typical response is... Eh, not bad. Yeah, yeah, not too bad or not bad. And, of course, we never say, oh, my God, what's wrong? 
we just let it go. If all your listeners think of the hundreds of conversations they've started that have started with not bad or not too bad, my gosh, what a waste. What do you ask? So the, what was the best thing in your day? Now, we've, we've done this. We've, we've had um, medical specialists who, you know, we've, we've trained using it. Uh, we've had prisoners in prison using it, and, and it works. So, so the, the, the way to do it is, you know, hello or g'day, pause slightly and just look at the person say, oh, what's been the best thing in your day? And the first time you do it, they'll probably stare at you, <laughs> uh, but then it'll become part of, of your patter. My fondest memory in the last couple of weeks was the guy in my supermarket who looked at me and said, you're the one that told me to change my greeting. Of course, I smiled, expecting a compliment. He said, oh, I don't have time to listen to so many good stories. And, of course, if someone says bloody nothing, you know you've got permission to say to them, what's wrong? What is optimism to you? My favourite definition actually goes back 700 years to an English mystic called Mother Julian of Norwich, um, who, in the Black Plague, got sick, prayed to God, said, if I recover, I will devote myself to God. So she lived in this little cell attached to Norwich Cathedral and people would come and seek wisdom from her. And her book is the oldest surviving book in English by a woman. It's called The Revelations. And there's one sentence in it that has become part of poetry and choral works. And she says, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Emphasis on the word shall. We can be up to the gazumba in COVID and everything else. And things shall be well. And she could have lived, if she'd lived 700 years, she could have written the Harvard Medical School definition. What's the Harvard definition? Which is a belief that good things will happen and that things will work out in the end. And Lisa, are you a fan of John Lennon? Yes, I am a fan of John Lennon. John Lennon famously added to that, and if it hasn't worked out, it's not the end. Do you have a motto? I do, and it's exactly that. Um, if it, it if it hasn't worked out, it's not the end. Has it ever let you down? No, I don't think so. I think um, even in the toughest of times when I was a parliamentarian, and parliamentary life in Australia can be pretty rugged. Um, my nickname at Parliament from the cleaners and the guards was Smiley. I still remember coming home one night and, you know, in the media I'd been attacked by people and uh, my wife said, oh, God, how was your day? And I said, oh, it was a really good day. She said, but, but, but I've heard, you know, on the radio, I said, oh, no, that's their job. And so I've always had this view, you know, that in the contest of ideas and the like, um, that, you know, you've just got to keep going. So it sounds like for you, optimism is a choice. It's a practice. It's a habit. The scientists say it's about 20% genetics, that for almost everyone, it is a choice. And we've done some really interesting studies. So I door knocked an entire country town. And in that country town, because people were farmers, retired farmers, small business people, natural optimism was off the Richter scale, nearly 50% of the population. Recently, I did a, a retreat for nurses and midwives. What was interesting was natural optimism was almost non-existent in their responses. It was almost all life experience or a mindset. And, yeah, when you think of the life of a nurse or a midwife, it doesn't matter how good their work is, a percentage of the people they care for will die. If you're in palliative care, 100% of your patients will die. So it's very interesting. For in, in, in each individual, it's different. And we, we see around the world most people, it's a mindset. Secondly, it's life experience. Thirdly, it's faith. Um, and it's either faith in God or faith in mankind or faith in science, um, people who believe in historical progress, and about 15, 18% of the population are natural optimists. And, you know, you don't need to change your whole life. You just need to change one habit. What would you say to people who might retort, that's fine for you, Victor, lawyer, politician, commissioner, if I lived your life, I would be optimistic too? The interesting thing is that optimism is not associated with wealth or success. Some of the bleakest comments I've had are from amongst the wealthiest people. And there's really good science and research out of Brookings Institution and others showing that in America, for instance, the most optimistic people are black Americans, right? Not wealthy, middle-class or upper-class whites. 
How did your grandparents and parents' approach to life cultivate your sense of optimism? Looking back, it's really understanding what happened to them that almost anything that's happened to me has been small beer. And there's this notion, you know, like um, my great-grandparents were, you know, under occupied Tsarist Russia and, you know, to read the stories of them smuggling books and um, holding underground plays, you know, in the face of an oppressive government. And my grandfather and his rat pack of cousins in the turmoil of the Russian Revolution thinking we can free up our country and actually they went and did it. Um, yeah, my grandmother, you know, 12 years in the gulag. You know, when you came back to the Soviet Union from the gulag, you were persona non grata. You know, you, you can't travel, people avoid you. And yet, you know, towards the end of the Soviet Union, she was confident she would outlive that. And then my mum, you know, typical refugee, you know, in a land, husband dies, she's got two kids as she said, strong and calm. So for me, it's been very much that. And then, you know, in my you know, years now, you know, I, I found my true calling at the age of 58. Um, for me now, I'm asking 20 or 30 people every day, what makes you optimistic? And it's so uplifting. What makes you optimistic right now, Victor? It's being here with you. It's sharing the message of optimism with your global audience and hoping, trusting uh, that several hundred of them will adopt one of the habits of optimism that we've suggested, whether it's smiling and saying hello to everyone today, whether it's laughing more or getting rid of that question, how are you, and replacing it with what's been the best thing in your day. Thank you so much, Victor. Lisa, an absolute pleasure. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations. My guest on Conversations today has been Victor Purton. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.